You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Uh, I don't know where, where all of you are from. Some of you are from here, Rockdale, Texas. You're Rockdale natives. Um, some of you are from other places, and maybe you're from uh, the big city, or maybe you're from some other small area, and you've just migrated to Rockdale um, for work or for whatever reason. Um, but there's a place that we call home. Most of us have a home, right, Some place that's home. You know, I'm, I'm kind of homeless. This is the weird thing about growing up in the suburbs. Uh, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas as a small child. Then we moved down to the suburbs of Houston uh, for, for most of my, my childhood. I spent there. I went to high school out there. I actually got a, an invitation for my 20th high school reunion. Um, I don't know if that means I'm old or what, um, but I got an invitation for my 20th high school reunion. And my wife said, hey, you should go to this. And I was like, baby, I graduated with 715 people, right? Uh, 715 of us graduated in my graduating class I said, whenever I graduated and I listened to them read the names, we were at the Compact Center, which was uh, where the Rockets played. When I I listened to all those names, I knew less than 100 of those people, right? Because, like, the classes I was in, I knew my friends. I knew another, like, 50 kids beyond that, and that was it. So of 700 kids, I knew less than probably one out of every uh, six or so kids, one of every seven or eight kids. I was like, I don't know that kid. I don't know that kid. Oh, I know that one. Right? It was kind of a weird game that I was playing. And I said, I have no interest in going there. And so I don't have a home. My home is where my parents are. Right? And so for me, my home is right now, it's in Malakoff, Texas, where I never lived. Because um, that's where my parents are. And so that's just kind of my drawback there. But if you're from a spot like Rockdale, even if your parents aren't here, or maybe they're not here any longer, it still can feel like home. There's this thing inside of us that draws us back uh, to whatever home is. And whether it's a home that you know well because you grew up there or it's a home like my home uh, that you didn't grow grow up in but because the people that make your home exist there, um, there, there's something about home. And we have this drawing back to home. And as Christians, we have a drawing back to our home. There's this, 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 uh, this thing inside of us that naturally draws our eyes heavenward, right? To, to, to this new heaven, new earth, eternity. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we, we have a home that's not here, and our heart longs towards it. And because our heart longs towards it, things here hurt in a different way. Right? So some of just the systems of our world here hurt us in a different way. And I wanna, today we're going to talk a little bit about our journey back home and why this place, no matter how much this place is your earthly home, it will never truly be home. For the believer. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this is the summer of pain for y'all. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes pretty much all summer long. If you're doing the Explore the Bible series, not only do you get Ecclesiastes in your sermon, but to end your summer, you'll get Ecclesiastes in Sunday school too. So you're welcome, people doing Explore the Bible in Sunday school. You get double doses of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what um, the, the writer says. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive 
But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. All right, so he begins talking about when he looks at the world. And we can do this on our We pull our perspective back and we look at the world and he sees oppression everywhere. He sees the, the wealth, the power, the people on top of the world system oppressing other people. Oppression is everywhere. That was true you know, when this was written, you know, 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, and it's true now, right? We can look at it in our world system now. I was reading something just uh, this week about El Salvador. I don't often think about El Salvador for a, a number of reasons, um, but, you know, El Salvador has a new president. I put that in air quotes because being a president of El Salvador is not exact. I mean, he was elected, I guess, um, but but now, like, he, he's taken over the Congress, and he's replaced the Supreme Court, and, like, and, and there's mixed feelings about it. Some people are like, well, great, he got rid of this formerly corrupt person, and he's fixing things. But the way he's fixing it seems, outside looking in, not El Salvadoran, um, seems pretty corrupt, right? Pretty, pretty corrupt. And, and you know, that's true everywhere in the world. Powerful people oppress less powerful people. And it's, just, it's a sad state of affairs. It's the nature of man that oppression is everywhere. And the fact that we can see oppression as believers, it should trouble us when we see it. Right? We should be troubled when we see people in power oppressing those not in power. It doesn't mean that we always have easy solutions to all of those problems. Right? I, I think about inside of our current political climate. We're, we're hyper uh, um, on edge right now in America. And some of this like oppression talk uh, can, can fly in, and if you, if you read a lot, you'll see like uh, critical theory and things like that, and they use like a language of oppressor, oppressors versus those who are being oppressed. And like, look, I, I discount all of that. But the truth is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if we look at the world, we can see clearly in some instances where there is oppressive people, oppressive, uh, just oppressive situations, and we should look at those who are oppressed and our hearts should hurt. doesn't mean that we can fix the problem. It doesn't mean that we even have an easy answer to the problem. But when we see the problem, for those of us whose home is somewhere else where oppression does not exist, right? that, 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 that Beulah land, that, that, that on the other side of that river, that, that, that land that, that, that we dream about, a land that is fairer than day, right? we, we see this, this song over and over again in our hymns, that other land where, where, where Christ is Lord and King in a real rule way, oppression doesn't exist, right? And so when we see it here, our hearts should be pricked by that. I think it's sad sometimes that that's not always the case, that we, uh, that we don't see things that way, that, that our hearts are just like, man, that's, that's rough, right? We need to see oppression when it exists, and then we need to recognize that, that, that it's everywhere. Like, it's, it's just... It's, it's pervasive across the globe. It's here in, in, in you know, the United States of America. It's clearly seen in places like El Salvador or, or, or other countries where you have dictators who are doing anything. You look at North Korea, right, and what's going on there, and you got one family who's doing everything they can to remain in control of a, of a populace, to keep their thumb on the control over, over a populace. Right? When oppression is everywhere, our hearts that know a better home should hurt. The author of Ecclesiastes is looking at this, and he says, man, I see it 
everywhere, it's better for those who have already died and better for those who've never been because they haven't experienced how rough it is out there. That's, there there's truth there, right? There's truth that, that if, you, if you can begin to empathize with those who are hurting, that, that you can begin to, to feel what God feels for the world around him. Oppression is not God's ideal, and those of us who are heaven-born will, will not feel at home in a place where oppression is possible. Continuing on in verse 4, it says, Then I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's also his vanity and his striving after the wind. For the fool folds his hands and eats his very own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Okay, so he says, look, we see oppression everywhere. But you know what else is, is really pervasive in this world that, that pricks our hearts as heaven-born children? It's that, that people are envious of other people. There's this jealousy of competition that we see. And we're always comparing ourselves. Right, we, we have a, just a natural inclination to compare ourselves. Well, I'm not as good as that person, or I'm better than that person, and I'm smarter than that person, and I'm dumber than that person. And we, we find ourselves constantly comparing. Right? Envy, this idea of making yourself, you know, comparing yourself, and then looking at other people saying, I want what they have, is a dangerous game. Right? And envy presses on us. It presses us to action. It presses us to work, it presses us to work harder than our work deserves, right? There, there, there. I was with my brother, love my brother, good dude, um, and uh, he's a sales guy, and he closes pretty much all of his work closes at the end of the quarter. It's a bad game of chicken between the, um, the, the company that he works for that's trying to sell the product and everyone else in the world who knows that the price is going to go down just a little bit on the very last hour that he has to do to get it in before his number has to get closed out. And, man, I've watched him, and, man, it is, it is exhausting to watch him because he just has to do it, and it presses on him, this, this thing. And, and that's just work. Like, work presses you. And it's not even that you're trying to be better than the guy around you. It's just our system that we live in today is a system of constant pressure. And envy drives a lot of it in our world. Well, I want to have another, want to have another whatever this is. I want to have another vehicle or another boat or I want to have another vacation or I want to have another um, you know, shirt or outfit or phone or whatever. Because that person has it. And if they have it, then I should get it. And our whole society is based, not based, our whole society is impacted, pressed on by envy. Envy is a dangerous thing. But in our hearts, we know that. Right? If you're a heaven-born citizen, you know that envy, the desire for what other people have, isn't, isn't the way the world is supposed to be. I was texting with someone this week. They asked me a question. They uh, actually sent me an, a blog article. said, hey, I want you to read this and tell me what you think about it. And I said, okay. Uh, and so I read the blog article, and it was from an author that I'm super familiar with um, for reasons that are not that important, but I've just read a ton of his stuff because I've had to over the course of my ministry life. And, and, and I was like, this guy's got some weird kind of like, he majors in some areas that I don't think are major areas. And you can do that. Your, your theology can get misshapen if you focus all on one thing, right? Like you've seen like the pictures of the guys at the gym, and they're all like, perfectly swole up here and then you look at their legs and it's like little chicken bone legs down there 
And you're like, that guy skips leg day. Right, a lot of us do that in our theology. We work out in one area and we just really focus on that and then like other parts of the body, like that guy doesn't look like they're built properly at all. And that's what this guy's theology kind of is from my outside in appearance. He majors on some stuff. He really works hard on some stuff and then it is really, really strong there. But in other areas, he's not so much. One of the areas he's really strong in though is the idea of eternal rewards. I don't know how familiar you are with the concept of eternal rewards, but, but basically... The way the Bible pictures like the new heaven, new earth, is there's some difference between us. It's not like a perfectly level communist society where like, you, I use the word communist, but a lot of y'all probably just shut down. It's not a perfectly level, equal society where we all have the exact same thing. Like where I live is this house and you live right next door in the identical house and and we have the exact same stuff. Like, there's some differences between us. You can read it in, in the way Jesus talks about, you know, uh, being faithful in what you have. And, you know, to the, him who has much more will be given. Right? You have this idea. And, 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 like, I'm okay with the idea of eternal words. It feels weird, right, that, like, like my reward will be greater than dogs. I just like to think that that's the way it's going to be, by the way. Um, but maybe, maybe that probably just, just flipped us right there. That one statement probably just totally flipped us, right? That my reward will be greater than Doc's. And I don't know how that works. Because I would think that if I was on the lesser end and I looked up at, you know, um, old Michael Lee living up on the mountaintop up there with this big, you know, chalet that, that God has given him for faithfulness, and I'm down there living, you know, in the, in, in the bottom looking at my like, man, how did he get that? I think I would be envious. Right inside of me that I would have this like, man, why has Michael got 10 cities and I only got one city? That doesn't seem fair at all. Right, and Doc's got three. How does this even work that I only got one? I was a preacher. Dang it. Right, like I, I think that I would, but the truth is like, like I, I believe that that exists. The Bible tends to point that there's some sort of like differences there. But it also is very clear that like I'm not going to be envious. That I'm not going to look at other people or other, other, other people in that final lesson and be like, oh, that person's got more than I do. And that matters, so I'm going to work harder. right? Because our, our hearts, like inside of that future world and that, and that world to come that God has promised us, right? they're different. And so envy doesn't press on us there. And so when we see envy, when envy is a driving factor in our lives, we have to recognize that. When you recognize that you're selling your family out so that you can make another $100 a month, Right? Whenever you recognize that you're, you're, you're giving up this, you're trading um, your, your, your faithfulness to your church, your faithfulness to serving God for another you know, little bit of money in the bank over here, another little activity over there. And the reason that you're doing it is because you compare yourself to your neighbor. You compare yourself to your friends. You, know, you go to high school with someone. You ever done that, by the way? You look back to someone you went to school with, and they're super successful, and they were dumb as a bag of rocks in school. And you're like, how did that person become something? They're dumber than a bag of rocks. Like, my, nah, I won't go there. I have a very personal example in my mind, but I'm not going to share it, okay, guys? Just know it exists and I want to share it, okay? But I'm not going to. Continuing on, envy, it presses us. Guys, but, but in heaven, envy is not a thing. It doesn't press us. And our heart should see envy here. And our heaven-bound heart should say, ooh, there should be a pause on us there. Uh, so not only is oppression everywhere and that envy is pressing on us constantly, encouraging us to compare ourselves we see in verse 7 it says again i saw vanity under the sun one person who has no other either a son or a brother yet there's no end to his toil and his eyes aren't satisfied with his riches so that he never asks who am i toiling for and depriving myself of pleasure this also is a vanity 
in an unhappy business. For two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is a common wedding thing, right? If you've been to a wedding or two in your life, you've probably had this, uh, this part of Ecclesiastes. What a wonderful book for your wedding, by the way. Like It's like the world is terrible. It's all vain. Oh, yeah, get married. It'll be great, right? What a, what a weird place to draw your wedding. It's like the, uh, the Ruth-Naomi line, right? And it's like, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my, my people. Your God will be my God, right? Where you, you, know, and you're, you're, where, where you, where you stop, I'll stop. And there I'll be like that idea. Like, man, what a great faithful devotion. You're like, oh, that's a mother-in-law to a daughter-in-law. That's not husband and wife. Right? It's just confusing when you do it in a wedding. Okay. Uh, but what we see here is that like isolation is a natural state in this, this world, right? At the beginning, we have this guy, and he doesn't have anyone to work for. He's working all day long, all night long, toiling away, and then there's no one for him to leave it to. Now, think of Abram in the Bible, and, and he's, he's, he's waiting for his heir. He's waiting for Isaac, and, and God says, you're going to have an heir. And, and Abram says, when? Abraham says, when? God says, don't worry about it. And he's like, I'm never going to have an heir. And the one I'm going to leave all this stuff to, because God had blessed him tremendously, because, you know, he was Abraham, he was blessed. And uh, he says, he says, all this stuff that you've given me, I'm going to have to leave it to Eleazar of Damascus. He's not even my kid. Right? Just to some random guy who lives with me is going to receive my toil. And God ultimately comes through and gives him Isaac. But, 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 but we live in isolation. A lot of people live their lives working hard for no one, just for themselves, and they never even enjoy what they worked for because they're always working for the next thing that they can do to one day maybe enjoy. The opposite of isolation is companionship, which we see uh, in the second half of this past year where, while we draw that marriage thing out because one of the great things about marriage is you're given a companion, a help me to be with you through things. But it's not just, this isn't a marriage passage, right? It's actually just about having someone with you. Having another with you. Because the world, our, our, our hearts, our heaven-bound hearts, draw us to companionship. Or they draw us to real relationships beyond ourselves. If they don't, then we, we're not listening to what God has put inside of us. Instead, we're falling prey to the fact that isolation keeps us apart. You know, God himself Right, just in the nature of who God is, it has companionship built in. Right, wherever God is, he exists infinitely in three distinct persons simultaneously. It's the beauty of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, simultaneously in one share. God himself is community. And if God is community, he's created us to live inside a community. It's one of the great things about the church. We're an opportunity to be community here on earth. But, we, but the world, like depression and other things inside of the world that we have, drives us to isolation. Right? Drives us to not want to get out of bed. Drives us to not pursue meaningful relationships. You know, we're told, uh, we're told that no one wants to hear from you. No one wants to be engaged with you. No one wants to know you really. And in that, we drive ourselves to isolation. The world is a place that pushes us towards isolation, and isolation keeps us apart from one another. And when we're apart, 
we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to attacks here. We're vulnerable to everything. But our heaven-bound hearts know that there comes a day when community will be who we are. Where the church, the real universal church, the Catholic, not Catholic church, right? Universal church will gather together, right? And we will be in community with one another. What a beautiful picture of eternity. That this world that leads us to isolation will lead us there no longer. Right? Our hearts know it. When we see people who are isolated, our hearts should hurt for those people. Those people who, who, who have lost, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a widow. Right? Our deacons are doing a, a widow's dinner uh, or lunch on the on 29th. I don't want to lie on the, the day here. On the 29th, Sunday afternoon. Right? One of the reasons they do that is biblically they're prescribed to care for the widows and orphans. That's part of the ministry of, of the deacon in the New Testament. The reason that ministry is implemented is because like widows were, were, were helpless in their day. Right? When the Bible was written, they couldn't own property really. They were really at the, at, the, at the whims of family to care for them. And not all of them had faithful family that would care for them. And so the church stepped up and saw people living in isolation and said, you are not created to be in isolation we will push in to a relationship with you. And we need to be about that, pushing into relationships with those people who are isolated. Now, some people will say, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. The truth is, like, if you've lived in isolation long enough and depression has grabbed you long enough, you don't want people around you. Some of you have dealt with depression uh, to one degree or another. I promise, in a room like this, uh, it is out there. Right? And that's what depression does. Right? It draws you into yourself. And if someone were to come to you, you would, you would actively try to push them away from you because you, you don't want to get out of that thing that's grabbed you. But you need it. The church needs to be pursuing those people, pressing towards those people, uh, because isolation keeps us apart. And when we're apart, we're vulnerable to attack. And we're in, we're in a dangerous, dangerous spot. We need to push towards those people who are isolated. Continuing on to verse 13, it says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went to, from prison to the throne, um, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was uh, to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. And so he concludes this thing with like a weird story about a young king, our old king and a young poor kid and how do they work together? It's a rags to riches story, right? This, this king had been born poor and then he became king and he stopped taking advice and now this young guy is going to take his spot. But the truth is, it's just to show how fickle the world is, right? One minute you can be on top of the world, the next minute you can be underneath the world, right? Success is a fleeting thing. My favorite story, uh, that's not true, it's probably like my 95th favorite story, is a story about a guy named Ryan Howard, not from The Office, in case you're wondering. Ryan Howard was a baseball player for the Philadelphia Phillies. Ryan Howard uh, batted like 355, that's pretty good in case you don't know, won the MVP. He hit for power, he hit for average, he was a first baseman, a little bit built kind of like me, okay, kind of heavy around the middle, not super quick, um, but, but could match the ball and, and just consistently drove the ball up the middle. Drove the ball up the middle, drove the ball, the, uh, uh, pulled the ball down, down between the, uh, the, the, the baseman there, and he was just consistently getting on base. And he was, he was like, he was the, 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 like the prince of baseball. He's probably on the cover of some baseball game back, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And then something happened 
baseball got broken. The guys who liked the calculators and the numbers broke Major League Baseball. I believe it's broken irreparably, and they started shifting. Y'all may, now I'm really inside baseball here. Um, but basically, they changed the way they played defense in baseball, and they ruined Ryan Howard's career. Ryan Howard went from hitting like 350 to 370 to hitting 220 over the course of two years. All because baseball, some guy with a calculator said, hey, you know, he hits the ball right up the middle. And, and for like 150 years, if you hit the ball past the pitcher on a line and it goes past the pitcher, it's a hit. It's always been a hit. And all of a sudden they said, why don't we just put some guy stand right there? And now half of Ryan Howard's hits taken away just like that. Right? Because success is a fleeting thing. There's always someone looking to take away whatever you were succeeding at. And so if you bill yourself, if you look at yourself on the eyes of, am I successful, you're always looking at a moving target. You may be successful today, you may be the MVP, the most valuable player today, but in two years you may be out of the league. Right? What a terrible tragedy. The shift, by the way, just fair, fun, free advice to you. The shift should be banned from Major League Baseball. That's pure, from the pulpit, it needs to go out to the world. So talk to your congressman about that, because it broke baseball. But... That's just for me and DJ. I really just think I'm talking to DJ now, really. It's just me and DJ now, and the rest of you are like, whatever, Matt. Still talking about baseball, huh? <laughs> what I'm trying to get at, though, is success is a fleeting thing. This, this, the story here, uh, you have this young guy becomes king on top of the world. Everyone's like, man, look at how great this guy is. And then, boom, now he's replaced. New young guy, new king, right? We look at it, our, our political system, right? Got a guy, he's president of the United States, four, eight years, whatever. Oh, this guy's great. And then, boom, unemployed, just like that. I mean, it just, just happens just like that. You got to leave, big house, all these servants, everything's great. And they're like, hey, now you got to go over here. Like, all right, I guess I'm unemployed now, right? What a tough job that is, right? Because success is a fleeting thing. You might be the top of your industry. You might be the, the best at what you do. But there's always someone coming after you. Success is a fleeting, fleeting thing. And we know, we know how fickle it is. In our hearts, our heaven-born hearts, we see that trying to please the masses here doesn't really work. And so if we can't please the masses for success, where is success found? And it's found in pleasing the one who our heaven-bound hearts are bound to. Right? If you have this heart that's been born in heaven, you have a home on the other side, all of these things should stand out as you look at our world. How oppression is crushing people, how envy is destroying relationships, how people live in isolation, and how no one is ever fully on top of the world for any length of time. That success is so fleeting because who you're pleasing is a fickle, fickle audience. But you have the opportunity to please someone who is not fickle at all. That's one of the things I love about God is that God is, is unchanging. He does not move with the day and with the, with the times, right? He is who he is, right? That, that, right? His name, I am, right? I am who I am. He's not moving. He's not shifting. He doesn't read the newspaper and say, oh, that's the popular opinion today. That's what I believe today. That's who I am today. He's unchanging. And to please him isn't that hard. Part of pleasing him, though, is to recognize when the world that we live in is in direct opposition to where the world that God is wanting us to be in. And where this world, this home that God has placed us in here, is, is runs counter to our eternal home, and there's, there's conflict between those two things, guys, 
When that happens, we recognize where our greater allegiance lies, and we try to fix things the best we can here to look like God's home. It's never going to be home here. You're always going to be a little homesick on this earth. You're always going to have a longing for something greater, for a world where justice is really seen, for a world where oppression seeks to be, where people are satisfied and content in the world that they have, where companionship is is everywhere and isolation is gone. You're always going to have a longing for that because this world can never truly be that. But while we're here, we pursue righteousness here. While we're here, when our heart is pricked and we say that's not how it should be, we pursue making it as right as we can here. Because you have an opportunity to, to give a glimpse for someone on the outside to see that, that, that there is a world where isolation isn't the reality. And when you press towards that person who's inwardly drawn and who's struggling through the difficulties of their life, you're showing them what heaven looks like. When you go and you see someone who's being oppressed, whatever you want to define that as, and you stand beside them to help them through or against those uh, who are trying to oppress them, if there's a way for you to engage in that relationship, you're giving them a glimpse of what heaven looks like. But don't stop there. Show them Jesus. Because you don't want them to see what heaven looks like but not know how to get there. And we've got to have a a robust theology that points people to Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. As we engage with them, we point them to Jesus because Jesus is that answer. Pursue righteousness in this world today. This world leads our hearts to be pricked often where things aren't right. We pursue righteousness because Christ pursued us first. Because Christ pursued us, we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. We're going to have an opportunity to remember the sacrifice that Christ made where he came to earth to be with us, right? He he took on flesh all of the infirmities that we experience in this world today. And he stood there, and you can imagine if my heart hurts when I see people in isolation and living, trying to please fickle crowds, how hurt Christ must have been who has lived for eternity past in perfect community with his Father. They came here to be with us, to make atonement so you could be with him forever. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask my deacons to come forward.